Hey guys, before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that we have our next Q&A coming up tomorrow on Wednesday the 10th of November at 6pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. We are putting it in the evening to make it a bit easier for people to tune in live, so we hope you can we can see you there. And if you have any questions, jump on to the Physio Accelerator Facebook page and leave them there, or tune in live and ask them directly to Trish. Hope to see you there, and enjoy today's episode. You are listening to the Physio Accelerator Podcast with Trish Wisby-Roth. Now, over the years, uh, strength testing has become more of a possibility in your everyday private practice clinic. Certainly my first experiences with strength testing were really at the AIS uh, during my master's year where we were able to have strength testing in the biomechanical labs at the Australian Institute of Sport. At that time, it required uh, expensive, um, uh, time-consuming and space-consuming equipment that was then uh, digitised and calculated. That was possible if you were an elite athlete, but it really wasn't accessible in the normal day-to-day practice or for your average even recreational athlete. When I went on to do my specialisation, which I completed in 2009, a lot of the research that I was reading at the time, particularly in regards to uh, tendinopathy, and also predisposition to sporting injuries if there was more than a 10% discrepancy between one leg to the other or opposing muscle groups. So more than a 10% discrepancy between quads and hamstrings could leave an athlete predisposed to a future injury made me believe that strength testing needed to become a important part of the assessment protocol, particularly for sporting athletes. And so I purchased what was the best um, strength testing equipment at the time, a handheld dynamometer. And in really the 18 months that I was preparing for my specialisation, worked really hard at um, being consistent, reproducible and reliable with strength testing with a a dynamometer. Uh, No matter how hard I tried, I found it very difficult to be reproducible and reliable Um, particularly for um, lower limb strength testing or even in upper limb strength testing when the athlete was significantly bigger than myself. The reason for that is handheld dynamometry really has been shown and uh, sadly, this was shown in research well after I'd done my specialisation. 
it's been shown in research that it is reproducible and reliable if the tester, so the therapist, can overpower the subject or patient, athlete, whoever you're testing. So consequently, with a handheld dynamometer, it means that I needed to be strong enough to overpower the athlete and the muscle that I was testing, which then becomes a big challenge. Do you know I'm, I'm uh, you know, 162 centimetres, you know, around, you know, between kind of, I don't know, 56 and 60 kilos, depending. So when I was testing my Olympic athletes, particularly my males, you look at a track cyclist, they could be 110 kilos. And when you look at strength testing, you need to have a reproducible um, position. And very often for... um, MVC testing, so maximum voluntary contraction testing, there is uh, or was at least a standardised position for the testing of each muscle group. These days there is uh, more of a movement. You can do it in those standardised strength testing positions, but particularly with cycling, there's, there is a real argument to test the muscles in the joint angles that are used by the individuals. So now that we, when we do strength testing of our cyclists, we actually do it in a cycling-specific joint angles and movement pattern. So it's more relatable to what is happening for the athlete in their sport, in the, you know, in the position um, that they need to produce that power. So... Consequently, no matter how hard I tried, I wasn't able with handheld dynamometry, able to be consistent enough with athletes that were stronger than I was for it to be a good enough objective indicator. This brought up really a conundrum and several problems for me, one that took quite a while to get over. The first was, while the research said strength testing was important to look at these discrepancies, if I used my best effort and the best equipment that I had, it wasn't consistent or in my opinion, valid enough to be able to take the results I have and say, yes, you do have a strength deficit of more than 10% or this is significantly different. It had to be really different for me to be um, confident. You know, it really had to be, uh, you know, 20, 25% to know that it wasn't my strength issue and particularly... I was more consistent in the upper limb with strong athletes in the lower limb. It was difficult. And what I did is really tried to um, 
be very strong and, and resistant. And I had a period over a month that I was testing a lot of athletes um, and really, really trying to be consistent to the extent that uh, I'd been doing strength testing on a lot of athletes, really fine-tuning positioning and really using my resistance and my body weight and trying to be as strong as possible. And I did that Monday through to Thursday. And then Friday, I got up sitting there to have my cup of coffee. And um, I went to lift my coffee cup and I couldn't uh, radially deviate. I'd actually caused myself a radial nerve palsy because I'd been putting so much pressure on the dynamometer and resisting the forces of the athlete with with my hand obviously in a little bit of um, radial deviation and extension that somehow I created an issue with my radial nerve which then took quite a bit of time to recover. So back to plan A for specialisation we really looked at functional tasks of strengths such as bounding, hopping. Um, we looked at, um, we used EMG and look at ratios, uh, not the pure number. But I had to concede that while strength testing theoretically was, was very valid, I, as the instrument, as part of the testing protocol, was um, had too much of a variation and was so unreliable that it was not a worthwhile tool to ha- hang my hat on. And interestingly enough, during the discussions over the specialisation exams, it was really interesting when I discussed that with the examiners um, They saw it as a real positive that I'd actually looked at other alternatives that may be more reliable than dynamometer stress testing. Now, saying that, um, I have heard people present with dynamometer stress testing, uh, a strength testing, sorry. Um, And if you're a strong male and you can be consistent and, and overpower them, then that is fantastic. However, I continued up until recently to, to keep my eye out for when technology would catch up so that there was an ability to do very validated, consistent, reliable and repeatable strength testing in a private practice setting. And I would have to say in the last four to five years, that has changed significantly. So I know now there are are several types of strength testing equipment on the market. The one we we have purchased and had had a lot to do with is the Axit system. So this was designed by... uh, a group down in Melbourne, and it we have the set of a pullet, which is a pulling device that looks at force. Uh, 
a pushet, which which is like a dynamometer, and then one called a stompet, which is a force plate. Now, with the three varieties, and I think that is important because a strength being able to pull something or the strength in being able to push something or the reaction force of jumping on something are three very different strength, different measurements, and but can be critically important depending on the function that you're assessing and what the individual wants to get back to, be that just ADL activities, work-related activities or sporting activities. So the equipment is is not cheap uh, and we really had to set up our gym so we could do consistent strength testing because I have made a commitment that no one in my practice has to be the physical resistance to a strength test. You know, if I can injure myself, then I will not put any of my physios in that position that they could could injure themselves. Plus, we needed to design a, a reproducible and standardised way of testing. And so in our gym, we set about setting it up so that all the movement patterns we wanted to test we could test and that has taken some time and if you decide to do the same in your clinic um, it needs to be a team approach with the clinic owner but we've set up a wall where you can attach the the pull it and the push it so that the very solid wall and you can it and position it at whatever height works for the individual so that a very solid wall with a stable attachment uh, is the resistance force. So that has worked really well. We also have, um, you know, uh, a weight rack that you can lock in so that when you're doing um, pulling up on a rack or uh, doing some resisted, you know, resisted um, calf work or cilia strength or um, pull-ups with the body in a functional position, uh, it is very stable and reproducible. And finally, what we have done is started a um, educational protocol for the practice where we have taken videos of exactly how to test every single one and AXID is very good in providing lots of videos but we found it was even better if we can put the test together in groups so we decided um, along with the one the protocols that AXID uses we also created our own program so we have we have a, a strength testing protocol for cyclists we have strength testing protocol for runners which is based on the AXIT uh, protocol we and then we have other groups which I'll go into 
in a moment. And so we've taken short videos of exactly where in the clinic and how in the clinic we do them so that everybody can do them in exactly the same way. And if someone wants to do a cycling strength assessment, then all they have to do is go on to the cycling strength template and all the tests will be there. Now, if you're talking at strength testing, uh, we've chosen to go with a fairly acceptable um, protocol of four repetitions where they hold maximum voluntary contraction for four seconds and then they rest for four seconds. And we do that four times. And with the the more advanced uh, strength testing equipment that you can buy these days, it will fairly quickly tell you if it was a valid reading and um, or whether you need to do it again. So that works really well. And depending on what you're looking for, whether you're using a force plate or um, the pulling strength or pushing, you can also get some really nice information about not only, you know, um, pure strength, but how quickly left versus right they were in creating that maximum strength and also how their fatigue rates what happened to their strength over those four seconds and also what happens to their strength over the concurrent um, four contractions. So that really does give you a lot of information. One of the other things that we have done um, with some athletes is there is a question of, you know, if someone is having a strength problem, is it a pure strength problem? Or as can happen in tendinopathy, and I think with a lot of elite athletes where it's just, you know, a mode of sequencing problem, could it be that that they're just not finding the muscle fast enough or easiest? You know, it's not quickly recruitable and so uh so it presents as weaker. And one of the things we've done with athletes is, and with some of our lead athletes, what we do is test them first and look at their strength and then go through their rehab exercises with them, particularly if they're, you know, isometrics and then they're really working on technique, technique-driven ones rather than MVC-driven exercises, so functional isometrics. And after doing that group of exercises for, you know, 10 minutes, re retest their strength. So if it is pure, purely a strength deficit, you would then hypothesize that that 10 minutes of isometrics, functional-based rehab where you're getting the body and the brain working really well together is not going to change pure strength. 
you know, it takes a minimum of 12 weeks for um, hypertrophy of muscle and really in elite athletes, it takes longer than 12 weeks to see big changes in strength. So what we have seen though, if it is much more, you know, descending inhibition, you know, due to tendinopathy or or even, uh, you know, faulty uh, neurotag patterning that they're working on. By doing some isometrics and then really functional exercises, really fo- with attention to detail on the movement pattern and what they're focusing on, very often when you do the strength test afterwards, they will have improved significantly. And that's not, that's, we haven't changed their pure strength All we've changed is their descending inhibition and also the acuity of their neurotag, so the communication between all the information getting fed up from the periphery to the brain and the brain um, synthesising that and sending down signals. So that's another really nice way that uh, you can use functionally strength testing. The big question in private practice is when do you introduce strength testing and should you do it for everybody? Now, practices and physios are very, very individual. So I think that there's probably three categories that we are using strength testing and we use it, we introduce it at different times. So the first group are those people or athletes, any individual, doesn't have to be an athlete, that come in with acute exacerbation of pain or have been referred for a significant structural issue that the GP, the specialist, or the patient themselves are concerned about. So that's the first group I'll talk about. Now, if someone has been sent for an exacerbation of pain, first and foremost, the aim is to differentially diagnose what what has happened, what is the source of their of their pain and their flare-up and as we've discussed in many of the podcasts that I think many people are more than just one thing. You know, you're lucky if you if you have a twisted ankle, it's swollen, it happened yesterday and otherwise they had perfect strength and everything else was fine. Uh, they're, they're a gift as far as a patient goes because they generally will improve very quickly anyway. But the, that first four to six, that first four weeks really has to be on differentially diagnosing what are the pieces of the puzzle to work on, work on a flare-up strategy, a pacing protocol, um, work out what needs to be, you know, if hands-on is needed, if modification of their activities is needed, all of those kind of things, building up their confidence that things are going to get better. You know, that first four weeks is all about getting the right mindset and the right initial pathway of control of the symptoms. And I generally, unless they're an elite athlete that is going off to be doing... um, 
you know, the Olympics or something very quick, very soon. Within the first four weeks, I think don't focus on doing any strength testing. Only focus on doing some strength testing. When you get into that second phase of rehab, so you've achieved your first goals, you know, they're, they're starting to get a handle on the pacing, the pain's be starting to be controlled and you're working on progressing their exercises into functional, functional, more functional or strength-based as they can tolerate it. Then is really a good time to do strength uh, strength testing, and what I would say is, you can you can pick with your average patient. You can just pick a couple of key muscle groups that you want to test. What I would say is, try to test it in in the positions that either the validated um, MVC testing and also in in the functional position that you would like you know, you're looking at their ability to utilise that strength. And I think you can just look at one or two muscle groups, even one muscle group in a session and compare it left to right. The nice thing about AXIT is it gives lovely reports so and it keeps a record of it so you can follow it, on, uh, follow it up over time. Um, another group that I we hold off on doing strength testing is anybody who has um, bony issues. So if they're sent in uh, with, and they have significant osteopenia or osteoporosis, generally they haven't done maximum voluntary contractions for a long period of time. And um, I do remember a case of a middle-aged woman who did so a maximum voluntary contraction um, of her of her glutes in a squat position and managed to um, sustain a stress fracture of the pubic symphysis. So, you know, I would leave any strength testing if they've got osteopenia or osteoporosis. And at this stage, we tend to use more EMG to look at the ratios of left and right and and functional movement patterns and look really more at the bone loading rather than isolated muscle strength. So they're the groups that we are cautious with strength testing. Even with our elite athletes that have been sent to us, uh, when they're in pain, we don't do strength testing until we've got through that initial phase where there's some positive outcomes, they're feeling positive. And, you know, with strength testing, I try to stay away from saying to elite athletes that they're weak. I'll usually say that they've, you know, they've developed some compensatory strategies, they've got some inhibition, or they're selectively not recruiting those muscles in their rehab strategy because... Um, Weak is a really bad negative connotation word to use with an athlete. So I think that's really important. Um, but from four weeks on, and it's really nice to test them, I think give at least eight weeks between testing, sometimes 12 weeks if you're going long term, but to be able to see those changes is 
is really nice and really reassuring for the person. And even for recreational athletes, they really like to be treated like elite athletes and to have strength testing. And, you know, we have only started doing it individually, but I see that there's real possibilities to look at some strength testing in in the pre-season for whole teams and just get an idea of how they're all going and see if there's any similarities in in discrepancies and develop a program for that particular team and see if by following that through the season if it has any effects on their performance individually or how they feel or um, injury rates through the season. So I think there's still, there's lots of possibilities for it. The other time we are now using it is we we do a screen before a, a functional screening test and use EMG before people come into any kind of uh, one-on-one strength or proprioception or balance exercise programs in our clinic. And then at four weeks, once they've got used to the equipment, they've got used to exercising, then we've developed a very targeted um, strength testing protocol, depending on the area. So we have a protocol for cervical, thoracic, shoulder, lumbar, pelvic, hip, knee, ankle, and depending on their issues, every four weeks. So if it's if it's someone with low back and lower limb issues, we may look at the protocol for the lumbar spine and hip um, one month. And then the next month, we might look at the protocol for the knee and the ankle and pick up, pick up any discrepancies, design their protocol, their exercise program, and we'll reassess those every eight weeks. So it gives time to change. Patients really love it. And they really love being able to see objectively if one side is stronger than the other or the muscle group that they've been working on has been able to change over those eight weeks. You don't want to do every muscle in the body and you want it to be very targeted and it's taken me a long time to be able to break it down and make it very targeted. And we may only test two muscle groups, key muscle groups in each area, along with some other functional movements, balance, um, neural mobility, if that was an issue. It's very a, a very three-dimensional assessment, but involves some, some strength testing. So hopefully that gives you some ideas how you could use it. And I would have to say having a a pull-it device, a push-it device, and also force plates is really worthwhile um, if you're going to do strength testing because it it brings up a lot and uh, I think it, it gives you eyes and insight that we can't get in many other ways. So um, you may have access to some strength testing. You may not at this point in time, but it may be something, you know, to talk about as a group at the practice. And, and certainly it takes time to integrate. We're still working at integrating it, but I would have to say that uh, Everybody that we've been using our strength testing on really feels that they get 
insight from it but it's very important to introduce it at the right time oh the last thing i wanted to say is don't do a whole battery of strength testing say on an elite athlete elite and a cyclist where you're doing lots of different muscles don't do it just before a competition because the reality is when you do four mvcs four seconds apart, and then you're doing multiple muscles, they will have DOMS afterwards. And they won't thank you if they're going on to on their competition day with DOMS from strength testing. So make sure you plan it well in advance. And hopefully you get to uh, try out some of the strength testing equipment that's out there and... Uh, if you want to chat about it more, come to our live Facebook Q&A. If you can't get there, just send it, send in an email and those live Q&As are then uploaded to these podcasts and uh, hopefully we, we get to chat on some platform at some stage. Thank you for listening to the Physio Accelerator podcast. If you'd like to find out more about what we do, head to thephysioaccelerator.com. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our email list for more great insights from Trish and information about our upcoming courses. Before you go, if you think of a friend or a colleague who would benefit from listening to this podcast, make sure you send it their way. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.